0: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextwheelcom slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more.
1: Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add
0: to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day,
1: the hot rock and relic the better one plus members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes
0: we also record additional pre and post show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear like conversations about similarly themed movies and answering listener questions from our live member chat speaking
1: of our live member chat we record almost all of our episodes in discord where members can chat
0: right along with us live members get access to other members only channels in our discord community as well on top of all that members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private next Real feed just for them that includes all the shows in the next reel family the next Real, the film board movies we like sitting in the dark and more new projects on the way to top it all off members don't have to listen to ads we've already eliminated those annoying dynamically inserted ads that let's face it we all hate it we are listening to you we love podcasting for a living and those ads help to pay the bills now we're counting on you dear listener
1: we promise we aren't going back to those terrible dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all all we ask is that you consider supporting the NextReal family of podcasts with a membership.
0: Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership.
1: Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today.
0: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to
1: the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Of mice and men is over. You're goofy. But you're kind of a nice fella. Just like a big baby. George. What do you want? Where are we going? You forgot that already, did you? We have a couple of acres. <sighs> and it would be our own, and couldn't nobody can us. And yeah, if we didn't like a guy. And say get and he'd have to do it well he gets in trouble all the time like he done at
0: weed you wouldn't tell nobody would you what'd he do in weed <laughs>
1: Head to com slash merch.
0: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for
1: listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Uh, here we are at Mice and Men 1939. Andy, why are we continuing this series 1939? What is going on in 1939 that makes us come here to talk about it?
0: 1939, uh, you know, often called one of the the greatest year of, Uh, Hollywood, as far as kind of the the golden age, the films they were cranking out. And, you know, this is one of these films that is included in the lineup of the 10 films nominated for Best Picture. And, of course, that is the series we're doing, the 1940 Academy Awards nominees for Best Picture. Wrapping it up uh, with this and our film for next week. It's very exciting. It's very exciting because it allows us to talk about the films
1: that Burgess Meredith was in before he played the Penguin. And um, I always celebrate that. Did you know he was in stuff before Rocky, like crazy, just crazy,
0: Burgess <laughs> Meredith as a young man. Yeah, we've talked about him in in the uh, uh, Day of the Locust, also. Yes, Day of the Locust. That's right.
1: Um, so the this is the adaptation from the uh, Steinbeck story, uh, and I think we both did. You were you able to get through it? Did you get through it?
0: Yes, I did. Oh, good it's it's so short like that's what's great yeah, about it's easy. a lot of these uh, steinbeck novels is it was all of you know a few hours to to read it again
1: i complained so hard when i read this in high school like i my, i mean i'm sure i complained so hard about all of these adaptations of these stories that we're going through because ugh they're kind of they're just like grown up adult like kind of dark human stories and i just didn't have a lot of patience for it i read it but i remember the weight of reading it being something that would dramatically outsized its actual read like it's such a it's a simple short story and i should have just shut my mouth and read the book it it took me so (laughs) much time to complain about it that i could have just read the book in an afternoon and been done
0: that's really the funny thing about all those things uh, cuz i this was a junior high book for me and it, but it's still you know i'm sure i'm sure i complained just as much about the fact that we had to read this grown up you know book about these <laughs> these people that i didn't care about is like why is this a story that i need to read yeah uh you know it's it's you know all of these books that uh they made us read and and you look back on on them later in life, it's like, really, why was I complaining about this one? Yeah, yeah, we did it again in in college
1: in a a, 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 survey, a literature survey course, and uh, and then I discovered why I uh, end up loving the story. And I love the story because it's a small story, and I think it's a deceptively small story that I I wonder if today major studios would see and think, ah, oh, yeah, I don't know that that could be really made. Right? But it's too small. There's not enough going on. Um, what can we CG? In straight of to, streaming. straight <laughs> right, to streaming. It would be straight to streaming. It would be straight to streaming. Right. Be, but you also kind of need an auteur Like this is why I feel like it was Gary Sinise that's able to come back and, and do it again in the nineties. Like it's somebody who who somebody who is passionate about the work itself and not you know and and able to shepherd it through the hurdles and the the flaming hoops that that would be required to actually get this thing funded and produced and made and and so uh it's it's a shame because it's a pretty special story and uh and i think this version of it uh makes it you know really uh, but to me i i watch this thing i'm thinking this is there are characters in here that i feel like are are largely unadaptable like lenny feels so real and, and resonant on the page. And as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, there's just how are they gonna make this a believable character? And yet somehow Cheney pulls it off. Like I it's just a kind of a, a miracle of a little film. Yeah. I mean I it's it's pretty special. What was your what was your experience going through it again?
0: Well I, I had never seen this adaptation of it before. This was my first time watching it. I'd only seen I'd read the book, and then I saw the Sinise version that uh, that he made uh, in 92, and that was it. And so this was the first time going back and looking at this one, which is funny because Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance as Lenny really kind of became a touchstone for this type of character, especially with his voice, to the point where uh, I was probably more familiar with that sort of voice that Looney Tunes pulled for you know one of their characters. and. I, you know, I'm going to love him and hug him and call him George. Like that was just like so part of my youth that watching this and seeing Lon Chaney Jr. Performing it was, it, it was like iconic before I knew it was iconic. It's like I already was familiar with the part and, and, uh, it was just, it really resonated. It was, uh, it fit perfectly and it is a delicate performance that can certainly be uh, turn into something that's too much or over the top, or done in a way that just feels like it's uh, you know not as respectful or diminishing of the of the character. But I don't know something about the way that that he captures it here is just uh, is just perfect. And, and Burgess Meredith uh, was great as as George, the one who is you know kind of the 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 friend who. Loves him, but is also kind of tough and uh, world-weary and kind of bitter about his place in life. But um, just, you know, they they captured it exceptionally well. And something nice about a lot of these uh, novellas that Steinbeck wrote is they're so short, it makes it kind of for a perfect adaptation because you're really not leaving a lot of scraps on the floor. Like, you can pretty much keep everything in. They did make some changes. I'm curious. I've never seen the play, and I know Steinbeck wrote the play right after he wrote the book. And I don't know, uh, like, like the character of May in the story is vastly expanded, presumably to give an actress a little more of a character to actually play as opposed to kind of like the, eh, you know, fairly straight and simple saucy hussy that she is in – in the book. And it was nice right, the to book, see... She's a foil to react to for him because it's still his the story of violence for him. And she, it's not the point. She never has much of a character other than a person who walks into rooms, flirts with the men, and leaves. And, it, you know, we never get any more story with May. And that was something I found really interesting in this film is that she actually was a tragic character here. She wasn't just this... Lucy who married Curly uh, because she wanted to get out of her life, and now she wants to get out of this life. Um, It was a much more interesting character. And so I I loved that they made some changes. Uh, Again, I don't know if it came through the play. I'm assuming it did. But I just found this to be an exceptional adaptation that just worked incredibly well.
1: I I couldn't help but think of uh, when you talk about other like uh, Cheney's performance as like a touchstone for similar characters. The whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking of Paul and John Coffey, like the relationship that Michael Clark Duncan has with Tom Hanks feels like an of mice and men relationship. And uh, I I couldn't help but think of that, like sort of generational touchstone that Lon Cheney puts in here, like the big guy, big guy playing a simple, simple human Yeah, that's a good, good uh, one. Yeah, pretty special, pretty special. So this is a movie that takes on a bunch of big issues in spite of its uh, diminutive length. You you know, I, I put them in, in the order that they struck me in my head, but I don't believe that's the order of, of how they're portrayed in the film. Right. I mean, race, gender, violence, uh, aspiration and hope. Right. And, and just kindness. Like, what does kindness mean? They, they all sort of strike me in a great big sort of kaleidoscope uh, at once. But the the biggest issue uh, for me and and I think continually the biggest surprise in how it is handled is the uh, act of demonstrating kindness in its own way through putting the dog down and eventually
0: putting putting Lenny down.
1: That's a that's a big swing
0: in a little movie it's incredibly um challenging and that's what i find so interesting about the way that steinbeck writes it's like it's such a short story but he's capturing so much and you know on the surface it's a fairly simple story we're following two uh two guys who go from farm to farm it's that period in the in the early part of last century where it's you're you're the farm workers and you just go work on this farm until the job's done and then you go work on this farm until the job's done and you make some money and then you spend it on uh, uh you going to the the whorehouse or the bar and that's pretty much your life and we're following a couple of them lenny is a guy who is a fairly simple minded you know he's uh intellectually challenged he has this issue with soft things and then he also panics and you know we start this film with them going to this new place leaving behind the town of weed where they had gotten into trouble because Lenny likes off things and he touched this lady's dress and wanted to touch it. And she freaked out when that happens, he grabs it and won't let go. And of course she thinks he's trying to rape her and they have to flee. Uh, Otherwise, you know, for fear of him getting lynched. And so, he, we we meet these characters and really it's just like a couple days in the life really is all we have with them as they kind of are trying to establish a successful life in this new place and of course it's just you know so many interesting characters we've got curly who is the one who is the the owner's son, who is dead set. He's a little guy, and so he's dead set on picking on big guys. And so he's got something in for Lenny. You've got Slim, who is kind of like the quiet cowboy, who uh, is the one that everybody looks up to. There's Candy, who's the old fella who lost his arm in an accident, has the old dog that that Carlson wants to put down. You've got Crooks, who is the African-American person who is working here that is separated and allows for some interesting moments about race relations and everything. And so we meet this world and we get a sense of the characters and who everybody is. And it's just, it's, they're all interesting. They all have stories that I feel could unfold outside of the scope of this film in interesting ways. And it's just how they interact and how all these different pieces come together that Steinbeck finds a way to capture in, again, such a short window of time, not to mention the Americana feel of it all. And that's something that it definitely, I think, drips from Steinbeck's stories, where it just feels like this is very much a story of the heart of the land of uh, at America at a time when it was trying to grow and figure itself out.
1: It's also an interesting story about about caretaking. And I, I think, you know, in reading up on on the film and on the the characters, there are a number of places that have that that posit that Lenny's condition is certainly demonstrates characteristics of being on the autism spectrum, or uh, you know having Soto syndrome, this sort of overgrowth uh, early in in age, and being able to to you know process slowly uh, is, is kind of a characteristic of of Soto syndrome. But but this whole idea of how those with any sort of spectrum disorder are cared for at this time. It certainly doesn't seem like this is something that Steinbeck was going for, but it's interesting with the you know gift of hindsight to look at what the film and the story does say about how we care for those who aren't capable of 100% taking care of themselves, right? That's the nut of the relationship of George and Lenny is that that to some extent, they can't exist apart and how they travel the landscape together, you know, taking on jobs, protecting one another in the way that they uniquely can protect each other. Um, you know, that that just as George looks out for Lenny, Lenny absolutely looks out for George. Uh, but his sensory needs uh, Lenny's sensory needs; these are things that George can't necessarily take care of for Lenny, and those are the things that that put him on, you know, what what others suggest are are the sort of spectrum disorder. And I find that fascinating the way the film spirals out of uh, sort of, or or the, their relationship sort of spirals out of control because of Lenny's inability to control his needs around sensory satisfaction and. Just as it was a a movie of its time in 1939, it really is a story of its time right now today, right? Because the world is sort of opened up about how we think about these, you know, conditions and how we help and support those with those conditions. To me, a lot of that just sort of jumps out of this movie as almost an advocacy piece, an unintentional advocacy piece uh,
0: about how we treat those who need treatment. Do
1: you get anything out of that?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that there are interesting comparisons that we have when you see the way that uh, Candy reacts with his dog and how it's, I mean, it's this weird, (laughs) it's a, it's a, I don't know, I can understand, I suppose, the mentality in that era and especially with farmhands and stuff, when there's an animal that's lame and their solution is to just shoot it and put it out of its misery. Like, that kind of sometimes seems like the way out to just, like, deal with this sort of situation. Like, if a horse is injured, well, we just got to shoot it because it's not going to be able to do much anymore. And, uh, you know, Carlson can't handle the smell of Candy's dog. And Candy has this old, old dog who used to be a great dog out there in the field and now is just old and it's an old dog and and the mentality it's it's a hard mentality it was hard to read it's hard to watch in the bo- in the book and the film when carlson's just like let me just take it out and shoot it and like like it happens so fast too it's like one scene where he has this decision just let me shoot your dog and Candy doesn't know how to react. And, you know, it's like he's trying to say no, but he doesn't know how. And he looks to Slim, who is just like the quiet guy who's just like, maybe it's for the best. And it's and that's what we get. And so he lets Carlson take his dog out and shoot him. And OK, yes, the dog doesn't have to suffer anymore. But the dog seemed perfectly happy. I just it's such a different mindset, I think, especially with, um, you know, people who have dogs at the house as opposed to people who have dogs on farms and use them as work animals and things and uh, but still it's that mentality about how you take care of something you love and and you're there for it even if in those times of struggle and and it doesn't matter that it is something that's old and having a hard time he loves the dog and his his thing is like i'm i'm fine taking care of the dog you know it's not a thing and it was an interesting and very effective mirror that we have that whole sequence and this is something steinbeck captures really well and milestone uh, lewis milestone directed this captures very well in the film just the way that that whole sequence is played and how it ends up mirroring where we end up at the end of the film when uh, lenny has accidentally killed may and george has to make the hard decision and uh, as to what he's going to do and it's just interesting because you have so many moments throughout the film of seeing George doing everything he can to help Lenny you know they're all he's always on his side even when he seems gruff and like I'm so tired of having to hang out with you and I could make I could do so much more if I didn't have you saddle saddling me and all of this sort of stuff but he still is always there and always will be it's just this final moment that you know he realizes because you know he even pleads to Slim can't can't they just catch him and just lock him up and stuff and and slim tells him you know that's not going to be good for him they're just going to lock him away and he's never going to get out and it's going to be a misery for him and it's just it's i don't know it's it's like a simple mindset that all of this is approached with but it's very effective in the way it's portrayed and very um i don't know very honest i want to go back to the dog a a bit
1: just a bit because i i my sense was Steinbeck played much harder than the film did uh, in, in Steinbeck's the way the voices that I put in my head as I'm reading the book were, I, I think, driven by his language, much more sort of virulent, much more sort of antagonistic against the dog and, and you know, hateful a- against, you know, uh, Candy for keeping the dog and. So the act of taking the dog out felt like an act of, of violence. And the movie, I felt like, played it softer, like he was doing him a favor, like they were trying to to really communicate, I think, that parallelism that we get at the end of the movie when George comes to terms with the fact that he's doing Lenny a favor by saving him from a much darker, more painful future. Did you get that same sense? I'm, I'm wondering why... The the movie played the ranch hands as more sympathetic
0: characters in the exchange of the dog. I I guess I didn't think that necessarily. Like, um, I I mean, specifically, I suppose, and I guess I can't remember in the book where the conversation about the newspaper pops up. Uh, You know, we have the one ranch hand whose name I'm forgetting who interrupts this. Carlson's pushing. At Candy to let him take his dog out and shoot him. Uh, one of the ranch hands interrupts with a newspaper and has Slim read this. Somebody who used to be there, who had written a, a, a response to something, right? Uh, like saying, "Hey, you know, I just wanted to say I, I love you know your book or whatever it is." It's in the it's in the paper, and they recognize he recognizes the name as somebody who used to be here, and he's trying to create this distraction, right? I can't remember in the book if that is just a scene that happens in the bunkhouse, but I feel like it's separated from the moment with the dog. Is that correct? Do you remember? Yeah, I believe that so, yes. I found that to be actually interesting, and, and probably to your point, they seemed in the film to be trying to craft a way to pull Carlson away from his zoning in on getting rid of this dog at this particular point in time, which of course he doesn't. And to that point, it would play into a moment where it does try to make the ranch hands a little more sympathetic, like they're actually trying to get him to change his uh, you know, focus so that he doesn't keep going down this road, which still doesn't work. But still, the biggest thing in in both cases, I think, is that Slim ends up going along with it and and when Candy looks to Slim for his support Slim's response is kind of like he probably would be better off. That was still as impactful as it was in the book and and hard because Slim just has that kind of the way of seeing the world in in that way. He doesn't want to say anything but he knows that that's the only only real thing he can say at that particular point in time
1: well and slim's such a bridge character like he's kind of our guy right like he's okay as a ranch hand.
0: yeah he's a great guy he's the one that everybody looks up to like candy wouldn't do any of this if slim didn't say that like candy would have fought probably but candy looks to slim for guidance and slim says he'd probably be better off yeah right
1: right which makes it that much harder to to watch as as things unfold when when you it sort of is revealed that Slim is ultimately powerless right in this in the whole endeavor powerless if if our if our execution of power is to save the life of somebody who needs it in the climax of the movie and that's that's the grief
0: of the film and, and yeah and Slim ties into the end also because he is there with George having that conversation with him in the barn and telling him, you know, they have that conversation about, you know, he's going to end up miserable in prison and probably put into an institution if you... But so first, he's going to be beaten him. horribly and tortured, right? Like, that's the... I, and I ultimately, I think it
1: was the the beating and the the torture, because I think George would have been fine if they would have taken Lenny and put him away, right? Because you know, at least he would be alive and safe somewhere and safe from himself, from his own instincts. And it's the it's the beating and torture what he knew that this lynch mob was going to ultimately do. I, I think that was the, that really drove him to take that ultimate action. But that ultimate action ends up giving me as an audience member the that final data point that says, you know what, in his way, George is just as simple as Lenny. Right. George has no more ability to think about sort of complex, like the way the story could play out in in complex ways, other than I just have to do this guy a favor and I have to put him down like a dog, which is horrible. Yeah. So
0: ultimately, is George's is George's deed a
1: good deed?
0: Are we supposed to get that? I, I think we're supposed to get that based on kind of everything we've seen in the story. Like it's leading to this idea that it's it's a good deed in that it's the best of the bad deeds, right? Yeah, it's like right. it's it's the best way out for Lenny at this particular point in time. Lenny has unfortunately put himself into a situation where he ended up killing a woman, and he likely would end up getting either locked up forever or uh, put to death. In some capacity or, you know, as is going to happen here, as as Slim says, with Curly here, there's no way that this doesn't end with him getting strung up. Yeah.
1: Uh, what's so interesting about it, like I, the fact we have a number of issues, of parallel right here, but that they they kill the dog. He kills the the woman. They kill him. He kills a puppy. Right. They kill the dog and it's OK. He kills the puppy and it's not right. That sort of judgment about what life matters what life what what does life count? Uh Somehow young and beautiful life counts a lot more than old or simple life. And that is a, a judgment, I think, that the film is forcing us to to examine. It's a bit of a painful one. Right. Yeah. It's right there with Candy, too. Yeah. Right. 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 And and so his entire exploration of. You know, his relationship with the puppy and then with her and the, the, you know, her hair and the fact that his actions, just the the nature of his size leads to unintended violence uh, is is a tough force to reckon with and yet still makes him a sympathetic
0: character he's an incredibly sympathetic character because of just the way that he sees the world and everything and and we have learned enough to not be on the side of of the curlies and the rest of the people like we see who Lenny is like we're we're there with George and Lenny, and we have a full understanding of who this character is. So we know, like George says, he's not doing anything intending to hurt somebody. And so when this happens to May, it's just an unfortunate situation that Lenny got himself into, May got herself into, and I mean the only other option really that George could have done is find Lenny, wait until the the mob went away and then try fleeing to Mexico or something. But again, that's not probably a life for either of them because Lenny at this point has actually killed somebody and it's, you know, just it's it's created a situation where it's never going to I, I just don't think things will ever get better. What's your take on this movie related to
1: race? I think it's an interesting one. The movie is regularly in the top hundred list of banned books. Uh, largely because of racial slurs used throughout, and then the profanity and vulgarity, and all those sorts of things. But it the, the has a we have a very interesting sort of uh, uh, character exploration in terms of these relationships in and uh, amongst the ranch hands around race. Do you get anything out of this?
0: Oh yeah, very much so. It's interesting because yeah, the book definitely has language in it that is a little more harder to read as far as the way that they. Um, the words they use and stuff, and it's you know that's kind of tough. Interestingly, I just I, I saw this um, this quote from Variety in the review under skillful directorial guidance of Lewis Milestone, the picture retains all of the forceful and poignant drama of John Steinbeck's original play and novel in presenting the strange palship and eventual tragedy of the two California ranch itinerants. In transferring the story to the screen, the scripter Eugene Solo eliminated the strong language and forthright profanity despite this requirement for the Hayes whitewash squad to solo and milestone retain all the virility of the piece in its original form. I think that's what um, I found so interesting is like it was in the book and it sounds like in the process of adapting this for the screen, largely because of the, the production code, they ended up crafting a story that actually to my eyes actually felt like it handled race it it had a reaction to the relationship of race at this point in time better than something like gone with the wind like i actually felt like in their one scene that we have with crooks where they're in crooks's room and it's lenny and it's candy and then george comes in and then may eventually comes in it's actually we're getting a better sense of how crooks is has to live because of everything going on in this world. And it just, it felt like it was a, a more positive understanding of race at this time that was able to take all of the, the language out that, uh and I mean, in the book, I mean, you even have May saying something to him, I can't remember what it is, that like puts him in his place. And it's like, whoa, okay. Like, it just, it felt like they handled it better. And I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised to see them handling race in a way like this. Yeah, I was too. And I, I, you know, from
1: my position, it's, it's hard to make a, <laughs> I don't want to make a, an assessment that this is, you know, somehow, um, diluted the, the actual intent of, of Steinbeck's original that in, in a way, like when I say, yeah, it was, it was great. I really enjoyed the sequence. It, I felt like it got to the point without, you know, quite so much of the hate when the hate was the point in Steinbeck's words, like that was the, that was the intent like you don't write that without wanting to write that to tell the the story that needs to be told and in such a short book that hate is peak right that hate is it makes a point very very quickly and and so i you know i look at the the movie and i feel like for the sake of the movie like right this is the 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 ebert does the movie succeed at doing what it intends to do apart from the adaptation from which it comes Yes, it does. I think it absolutely my take on it is that that sequence of having a much more sort of convivial relationship in the in the bunk between these characters and demonstrating the way the rest of the ranch hands, you know, see that relationship, I think works fine. But does it over sanitize the point Steinbeck was trying to make? That's the that's the part that I that I wonder. And, of course, this is not a, that is not a movie that could be made at this time. Like, I absolutely acknowledge that. But does it do a disservice to to Steinbeck's intent?
0: You know, I don't think so, because it's still there. You know, I mean, I it, it, the the downside to it is that the character of Crooks is diminished to a certain extent. Like, we just don't have as much of him. And he wasn't in the book a lot anyway. Not a lot. It was more in reference when they would call him the N-word, things like that, that uh, we're getting a sense of, oh, and he's here too. Uh, There is a little bit more and it's a little more pointed, but it's still here. And I think the way that they captured it allows us to still understand that perspective. And so... I don't know. I think that it's a fine dance and I understand them kind of dealing with the with the production code and everything to simplify it and uh, to kind of thin it out a little bit, but I still think they're capturing it here. Yeah, I think that's
1: it. And and you know, at at its most interesting to me is the fact that we have this character in the movie that is portrayed. And we already know as audience members this is how race is portrayed in film, and yet the lynch mob goes after the big, simple white guy. Right? Like that's the interesting twist at the end of this movie. That that we know we've seen the movies before. We know the stories, and especially at this point in history, it's still very, very real that hate and uh, that racial hate. And this movie is about how we look at. Other difference, right? And and we revile other difference, uh, you know, in effectively the same way we revile the difference of skin color, and that makes this a, a a a grim sort of mirror to stare into. Yeah, in terms of our recent
0: past. And to that end, it does make me wonder if if this were to be adapted now, how that element of the story would change like would they build it up more than the book had you know yeah i think they would have to i think they would have to but i I, i don't know i don't know yeah that's interesting yeah what else you got well you know we talked a little bit about about may at the beginning as far as kind of the treatment of of her character and the kind of the change that they made in her character, which was pretty interesting in here, you know, giving her a little more and making her this tragic character. But it really also speaks to the world of women at this particular point in time. And what I found so much more interesting than May in the book, who is really just there to essentially end up being this, this foil character who comes in and is always like peeking all of the, the hormones of all the men at the camp while also pissing them off for doing so because they just know Curly's going to come around looking for her and i mean it it's a it's it plays well especially for curly's character but in the in the book there's she's not much and betty field you know plays this role and brings this sense of just wonderful tragedy to it that i found so uh so touching and it just it it worked really well for me i just enjoyed the way that that she played it and and, um you know it it is heartbreaking you know the one scene that i that stood out to me that was i mean completely not in the book but it was when it was a dinner scene of her and curly and curly's dad the boss as they were kind of eating and she just, you know, she puts out the food and she watches these two men take huge chunks of pie, pour a bunch of, of their cream all over it, and and just eat. And both of them are completely in their own world, ignoring her. And she's, you know, she holds up this newspaper clipping of the movie times and stuff. And she wants to go see uh, a movie. And Curly apparently had promised her. and. The only conversation that she's that they have really is she asks, oh, "Can we are we going to go see this movie?" And she he's like, "I saw it with the guys last week," and that was pretty much it. Is he's so dismissive and horrible to her, and she's trapped. She is absolutely trapped in this place, and she can't get out. And the dad won't do anything either. Like she goes to turn on the music, and he's just like, I'm working here, and so she's she's married into this world where she's not allowed to do anything, and so she's just trying to find people to talk to and everything, and no one will communicate with her because. Because she is this beautiful woman, and Curly, nobody trusts. They know that if you get on the wrong side of Curly, that you can be in trouble because he's the boss's son. And it was such an interesting exploration of this character, and I'm so glad they gave her more to work with here because it made for an interesting character. And when she finally has that conversation with Lenny, it actually has a little more weight because she's finding someone to actually have a conversation with as opposed to, in the book, it just feels like, oh, she's just being her flirty self. And here she is, kind of, uh, you know, talking to Curly. But it actually felt like she was reaching out to find something with somebody who would actually like have this conversation with her.
1: I really like that. So let me ask you in the context of kindness, right? If we, if we look on all of these accidental and potentially intentional deaths as acts of, of kindness in their own way, is May's death? an act of kindness from the perspective of the book of the story of the story an act of well you you i think you really you really encapsulated may's story and you know your word trapped i think perfectly that's exactly what i get out of may's experience if she's truly trapped is one possible way to sort of vector of approach of her character line to say like was she courting this sort of uh, potential danger? Was she or is her death some way a salvation for her that there's no other way for her to get out than than to
0: die? I mean, it's an interesting way to approach it. I don't know if it works completely in either Version either the book or the film, because in the book, we don't have as much to care for with her. So we're not getting a sense of salvation when Lenny kills her. All she is is flirty, and he ends up killing her. So we don't get that sense of a salvation in that case. In the film... She has just been basically kicked off the ranch. Curly said, I want you out of here. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And her plan, she's packed her suitcase. She's carrying it into the barn with her. And she's going to go take the next bus to Hollywood and try to make it. And so in a way, by giving her more, they actually take away the sense of what you're talking about. There really isn't a a, a way to look at it as as a salvation, as an act of kindness, because she. Potentially, was already getting out of this situation. You know, yeah, that she's
1: already been saved. Yeah, uh, and and doesn't I I get I get your point. I think her portrayal. I would. I I I think um, you know Fields portrayal of the character is is a bit over the top, kind of daffy drunk to me. That when she's killed and when she gets freed from the the farm i don't necessarily get a sense that she's freed from anything other than you know the prison that is herself right like i don't have any sense that she's going to be successful in hollywood right i all i get out of her is that she's going to find another relationship to be trapped in and she just got lucky on this one but that doesn't give me any sense that she has any any more of a palatable future ahead of her in the midterm apart from the short term
0: yeah, all we can do is hope that she's able to find something. But yeah, I mean, I it I find it hard to imagine that she would find that lucky streak that would actually get her out of this uh, this mess that she's perpetually stuck in. Yeah, she's cursed unlucky. That's yeah. sure. I mean, yeah, a home with a drunk father who's dead and a mother who kicked her out. I mean, it just sounded like she was, uh, you know, stuck in a situation where she was not going to be able to get out yeah. very easily.
1: Yes. Uh, you want to talk about the, the the people? Can we talk about the people?
0: Yeah, I mean, we just talked about Betty Field, but we definitely should talk about uh, Burgess Meredith and Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, for sure. And you brought up Millstone. Lewis
1: Milestone? Milestone. Lev, is it Liv? Lev, Lev, Millstone, Milestone? You know, I get them all. <laughs> uh, because he is Lewis Milestone, original name, Lev Milstein, born in Russia. Uh, which is now Moldova, where he was born. Fascinating director. Uh, so yeah, a, a number of uh, adaptations: All Quiet on the Western Front, Walk in the Sun, Mutiny on the Bounty, uh, and more, more, more. Uh, he w- served in World War One. He was served on the training films for the U.S. Army, so he's uh, he had his cut his teeth in film as a propagandist. <laughs> I guess you could say, and uh, I I think that is an an interesting thing. And then, of course, in the in the thirties, he. Um, uh, you know he's he made a bunch of important things, and uh, this is uh, absolutely one of them.
0: And then we talked about him when we did Ocean's Eleven, the original, which we're not fans of. That's right,
1: we are not fans of that. No, that's no. true. Yeah. Uh, are you fans of anything else that he has done? Are you
0: a, are you a big millstone head? I don't know what else of his I've seen, honestly. Yeah, I mean, looking at his lineup, I mean, some of his biggest films like The Front Page, Anything Goes, Purple Heart. He did an adaptation of The Red Pony in nineteen forty nine, Halls of Montezuma, Les Mis in fifty two. I just, you know, I haven't seen, I haven't seen many of his films, unfortunately. Yeah, I think but I do think he's
1: worth uh, he might be worth looking at. He's done a lot of stuff and a number of these big adaptations. And uh, it feels like he could make an interesting little series of some some fascinating films of the of the time Um, and worked a bunch with Aaron Copeland, I gather. And I think Copeland did the score on this film and it's fantastic. And uh, and so um, that's a,
0: a composer that I'm really into. Yeah, there's something about Aaron Copeland's film scores that always—I don't know—in my head just seem connected to uh, Steinbeck. Like both of them have such a sense of Americana. Uh, I mean, and maybe I mean he did the Red Pony uh, adaptation with Milestone uh, in '49. So I don't know. It's just like something about his his music just feels like it fits. Like you could just put on Aaron Copeland music and listen to it while you're reading Steinbeck's books. Oh, for sure, for sure.
1: So that's uh, Millstone. I, I think is a really interesting director, and maybe we haven't seen enough of Millstone's work to see if this is a real. Would you Would you be a millstoner? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you know, I, to see if he has a particular stamp, but uh, I am curious. I'm I'm rendered curious uh, after this movie, and then of course Burgess Meredith. You already brought up Burgess Meredith,
0: The Burge. As we were going through things that uh, you know we had remembered Burgess Meredith from, the one thing that stuck into my head, uh, funny enough, was uh, Clash of the Titans, um, 1981 one? baby. Yeah, Absolutely. very. Uh, that may have been where I first saw him as a kid, and just I you know always kind of picture that movie uh, because of that. And I forgot that uh, we also uh, talked about him when we talked about foul play. That's right, we did. In our Colin Higgins series. So there's, I don't know, something about Burgess Meredith um, generally works. There are a few times in this where, but I, I don't think it's him. I think it's just the character. Like, there are times when I question the way that George reacts to people sometimes. Like, he is so hot-headed and quick to, to get his ire up when people say things, but I don't necessarily think that's Burgess Meredith. I just think that's how Steinbeck and... Uh, Then the screenwriter end up writing this character, and I think Burgess captures it um, very well because, you know, he's this person who's just like living this itinerant life who wants something more but has never been able to get out of it. And I just I feel like that comes through quite well the way that he portrays the, the character here.
1: And and so much of this movie and so much of this of the story is made of the relationship between these two guys and their physicality. And and I mean, you already brought it up earlier, like the whole, you know, conceit of the great big simple guy and the little whip smart guy. And we have it in any number of cartoon relationships that come after. And I brought up the Green Mile like it's just it's, it's a, it, it has become a trope. Uh, and yet he really does do service to the little guy who's whip smart, right? Like his, I, I never once doubted what he brought to their pairing because it wasn't, it was never a joke, right? It was absolutely his, his size, his physicality was never rendered a joke. He was never too easily picked up and moved physically. Like he was a, strong presence. And that is all credit to Burgess Meredith just being incredibly talented and charismatic on screen. Like there's a reason he had a 70 year career. Like he's just fantastic and uh, supremely talented at making the camera look at him and buy it. And, And and that's why we watch him in 1939 here and in Rocky. Right. That's why we watch these movies. I have not seen enough of Burgess Meredith's movies, for sure, but every time I, I watch these, especially when we go back in time like this, I'm I'm really transfixed by this guy.
0: The last thing that he did in his career was the, um, well, it was the sequel, Grumpier Old Men, but the fact that he played their grandpa, like, I, I think it was yeah. Jack Lemmon's dad in that, <laughs> like, he was so funny as like the grumpy grandpa like he was just great so i loved him in, yeah. in those movies too so yeah i mean just, he's just has such a huge career and he's just always great to watch i, I loved him uh, i loved him in this film yeah for sure
1: it, you know we we talked about uh, betty field a little bit nice that she has more to do
0: was it interesting to you that she got billed as second credit over lon chaney jr
1: I wonder should it have been interesting to me in terms of where they are, where they were in their respective careers.
0: This was her second film, and she did both of them in 1939. Wow! And he had already been very busy. Yeah, and so it's interesting to me that again, maybe they were just trying to you know, make it more appealing because it is a very male film. Like this is a very male story about these farm workers life on the farm as are all work in the fields and doing all this sort of stuff. And she is just the one woman character who really is kind of like coming through here. But it does make me wonder if by giving her second, uh second bill, they were trying to give this sense of a story that uh women could go see too. It wasn't just for men. Yeah. I don't know if the movie succeeds entirely on that front. (laughs) (laughs) No, but once they're in their seat, they're in the seat, you know? Yeah, right. (laughs) uh, It's just one of those things, though. Like, it just struck me funny that as I was watching them, like, wow, Burgess Meredith, Betty Field, and then Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, right.
1: Um, What do you know Lon Chaney Jr. best for in his 196 credits? Yeah, it's all the Wolfman. It's all the Wolfman. It's all the Wolfman. And uh, he was he was always the Wolfman. And he was the Wolfman, e- even in Dracula and Frankenstein movies. Uh, he ends up in uh, as the Wolfman. So uh, he's I I like the Wolfman. I like Lon Chaney Jr. I think he's great. And and it was fun to see him actually act. That is what I I get out of this. You know, it's one of the things in this movie that I think really put him in a different place, which was the fact that you can put him without a lot of makeup, and you can actually see that there's a performer under there, um, and that there's a guy who can be more than a cowboy. There's a guy who can who can actually demonstrate some depth, and because um, that's what he was doing. He was doing a lot of westerns, and then Wolfman came along, so.
0: And which he kind of did through his career, horror films or monster films and westerns like that seemed to largely be his bread and butter is those sorts of films. So getting a role like this uh, to come along, I think, was uh, just, I mean, very exciting for him because it gave him a real interesting character to play. For sure.
1: Anybody else hot on your list?
0: Uh no, I think that you know the rest of the cast all are great. We've talked about John Steinbeck a bit, but I mean yeah, this is uh, up there with the John Steinbeck adaptations just definitely one worth checking out. Uh, the only other notes I had was it was interesting because it's it maybe it's how the book opens. I really can't remember if it talks about the um this Scottish poem by Robert Burns that where the 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 title of Mice and Men comes from, but it's from a poem by Robert Burns that he wrote called To a mouse, or turning her up in her nest with the plow, that he wrote in 1785. Could you do a dramatic reading, please? Do a dramatic and now (laughs) a dramatic. Everybody, turn
1: down the lights. Turn down the lights. (laughs) Close all the doors and windows. Andy's going to do a reading in
0: Gaelic. I absolutely am not going to do any of that. (laughs) And I'm not going to read it because it's actually fairly long, uh, but I will just, uh, you know, say this. This is the English translation, but mouse, you are not alone in proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go oft awry and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy, which I think, you know, I, I never, I don't think I re- realized that it was from this poem, but I mean, I think it speaks so well to kind of this sense of what, I mean, because we have. The plans that they are trying to do, right? That's this whole story is like Lenny and George have this plan to to get this place that they're saving up their money for. Candy goes in on it with them and they're going to do it and they're going to live off the fat of the land. And, and of course they go awry because Lenny just gets himself into that situation. Unfortunately, it's just, I, I think that it, uh, it plays really well for the story and it works well as the title. Yeah, for sure.
1: Let's see. Do we have anything else on the hot list? I don't have anything else on the hot list.
0: Yeah, I guess that's it then. So uh, we will be right back. But first, our credits.
1: The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Ben Goldstein, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
0: You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
1: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you. And allow us to keep having these great discussions.
0: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show.
1: In season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them.
0: We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The
1: 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of I Am, based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The
0: 1952 Cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel.
1: So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater,
0: A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter. Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black. And Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals
1: today. Uh, Okay, Andy, sequels and remakes. Man, they love going back to the Steinbeck well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, as I uh, mentioned, you know, Steinbeck himself, you know, he wrote this as a novella and a play. It was adapted into this. Um, he helped adapt it into an opera in 1969. Then there was a 1982 version of it adapted with Randy Quaid, Robert Blake, and Ted Neely. And then, of course, as we already mentioned, the 1992 version with gary sinise um yeah interesting that this uh story i think just hits with people and has been something that they found it made sense to adapt and you know i don't know the play obviously is one that just kind of continues to run i think the last version um well there was a ballet version that that also came out in 2022 but the last version of the play that made it big was on broadway with james franco chris o'dowd uh, Leighton Meeser and Jim Norton. So, um, I don't know if there are any other film adaptations that people have talked about, but I do know there also was uh, a version that was uh, made in India, a I knew you were gonna say that. language, right? Yeah, well, there's always another. <laughs> there's always, <laughs> if, an if there's one thing we know adaptation. about those Bollywood or those <laughs> filmmakers in India they love adapting anything they can. <laughs>
1: Uh, okay, well, we've got to talk about the award, even though we're not going to talk. We're nearing the end of this particular first uh, first <laughs> nugget of awards. So we're not going to talk about the whole thing, but we do need to talk about how this movie did at the awards season.
0: You know, again, we're talking small numbers of awards at this particular point in time because there weren't a lot of awards out there. This film was nominated for uh, six Um, Awards. It had two wins. At the Oscars, it was nominated for four. uh, Best Picture, but lost to Gone with the Wind. Best Sound Recording, but lost to the film When Tomorrow Comes. Best Music Original Score, lost to The Wizard of Oz. And Best Music Scoring, lost to Stagecoach. This is something I know we've been talking about over the course of our... Um, all of these films from 1939, the the complex uh, weavings between original score and scoring. And I think we've slowly kind of figured it out. Original score is actual, an original score, whereas scoring is when they use other pieces and integrate it into the score itself. And some films were nominated for both. And weirdly, I guess their decision was, if you had original score, but you also used some other music in your score will just you know you know consider that um game to get nominated in both categories which it did here weirdly mhm so and then over at the national board of review it uh you know the national board of review if you get nominated you essentially win so um it was uh one of their top 10 films and also best acting for Betty Field got an award for that as well so those are the awards weirdly No acting nominations for either of our uh, performers. Does that strike you as
1: odd? It's really surprising. Uh, It's so surprising to me that neither of these guys got a nod. I would have absolutely expected Chaney to get at least something, if not both of them, because uh, it's a swing and they're great. Feels like should have been noticed.
0: How would you do that? Both leads or would you do Burgess Meredith as lead and Lon Chaney Jr. as supporting? how would you how would you do that and
1: i see that's the that's the award calculus that I'm just terrible at for me, they're both leads uh and so I'm sure that's not how a studio would submit it. I'm sure of it, right It would have had to have been Meredith's lead and Cheney is supporting
0: I would think so, although I don't know if they were as attuned to that yet. I know that's definitely something that comes to play later. Yeah, well I guess we can talk about like next week with some of these categories. Um uh, as far as like who would we have dropped, how would we have structured that particular thing, but um
1: well, and and in the scope of this kind of movie, who are you following, right? Like it's these buddy movies like Butch Cassidy, like who's the character around which the movie revolves.
0: Yeah, well it's definitely George. You don't have it's
1: George. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's definitely if that was an easy answer. I didn't expect you to have such an easy answer. There was it was like right off the dome.
0: Well, I never would have put Lenny in best actor and George in supporting actor. Like the only options were either George as actor and Lenny as actor or George as actor and Lenny as supporting.
1: George as actor, Lenny as supporting. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Well, that's fair. Nice math. All right. I this is the part I've been looking forward to the most is your rigorous and detailed research into the box office. I know you have uncovered all of the rocks, and uh, you have found some incredible detail on how this movie was funded. Please, share.
0: Sometimes I don't know if if I should not paste anything in here in our show (laughs) notes until (laughs) until (laughs) afterward, because, yes... (laughs) (laughs) this film was incredibly frustrating like last week's film there's just nothing in here uh this is one of those spots where there's nothing out there at all um what i found was this film opened december 30th 1939 other than that i couldn't find a damn thing this is very frustrating
1: and if you can't andy who can it must not (laughs) exist that's what i'm saying
0: Tragedy, the tragedy of it all
1: The tragedy indeed I I am uh, so glad we talked about this movie And um, uh, I I think it's fantastic And and was a great watch It was fun to go back in time on this one
0: Yeah, I loved it And I'm I'm definitely glad that we've added it To not just our 1939 series But really this this whole series Of kind of closing out the the best picture nominees For the year Um, Some good stuff in there And this is definitely one of them For sure All right. well we'll be right back for our ratings But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie Closing out our series The first series of our uh, Season 13 William Wyler's adaptation of Wuthering Heights
1: Don't you see what he's been doing? He's been using you to be near me To smile at me behind your back To try to rouse something in my heart that's dead You can't Heathcliff's not a man But something dark and horrible to live with Do you imagine, Catherine, that I don't know why you're acting so? Because you love him. Oh, Heathcliff, you must not do this wilderness thing. She hasn't harmed you. You have. Then punish me. I'm going to.
0: When I take her in my arms, when I kiss her, when I promise her life and happiness.
1: Oh, Heathcliff, if there's anything human left in you, don't do this. Oh, Heathcliff, why won't you let me come near you? You're not black and horrible as they all think. You're full of pain. I can make you happy. Let me try. You won't regret it. I'll be your slave. I can bring life back to you, new and fresh. All you have to do is to shoot. They'll thank me for it. The whole world will say I did right in ridding it of a rotten, gypsy beggar. Yes, they'll say that. Shoot, and you'll be
0: master here again. The whole county will resound with your courage, Hindley. Go on, shoot, your peeling chicken of a man with not enough blood in your veins to keep your hands steady.
1: Letterboxd, Dandy, uh, let's, let's see. How did this movie... I, we've, we've talked a lot about how great Letterboxd... Or how great this movie is. Does it equate to five-star and a heart for you on Letterboxd? And by the way, you can check out our own Letterboxd profile at letterbox.com slash the next reel.
0: What are you going to do? This is a hard one. I don't know why. I am such a fan of Steinbeck's novels. I feel like the film adaptation of The Grapes of Wrath stands up a little higher for me I think that for this one I'll probably go with four and a half and maybe down the road it would be it would jump up to five but I, I feel really comfortable with four and a half for now
1: I have a hard time with this one too for some reason I I do love it so much and I'm I this is once again uh, where a, a place where I am I I think if I hadn't leaned so hard on Pete no half stars right I might have landed on four and a half I can't i I don't feel terribly strong about four stars that feels like i'm diminishing my feeling about the movie so i am gonna have to give it five i'm gonna have to go all the way to five wow all right i know
0: i know that's good that's exciting i feel like uh we have yet to hit five stars in this uh latest series that we've been doing um and so it's nice to it's nice to get there that's awesome
1: yeah, I I really I, and I I I don't want to hedge it too much. Like I really enjoyed my experience with this movie. I thought it was great, and I'm trying so hard not to be a relativist in in how I look at at movies like this. I'm really trying hard to stay in my experience with this film, and um and so I that's that's where I feel like I have to go. My experience was five star experience. Let's let's go ahead and be
0: that. Do it. I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, uh, that will put us at four and three quarters uh, as uh, an average, which uh, will round up to five stars and a heart over on our Letterboxd page. As Pete said, you can visit our HQ at letterbox.com slash the next reel. So, what did you think about *Of Mice and Men*? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we are going to be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: Letterbox giveth Andrew, as Letterbox always doeth. Okay, I have one that's one that's a joke, and it's by it's a three and a half star by Rustman who says, and I think I have to sing it: "Tender to tender rabbits, tender wabbits, tender wabbits. <laughs> That's the end. <laughs> uh But my real one is uh it's a uh, four star from Frump, and it's uh, it's a little bit longer, but it it does ask questions. Can I? Do you mind? May I? No, please. All right. I mean, yes, please. So I knew this was <laughs> okay. shutting up, sir. So I knew this was a popular novel and I knew of the very, very, very end of the story, but nothing else. Somehow they never made us read this in my high school. It turns out there's a reason for the story being popular even today. It's a story about loneliness and loss, a story about be- a story of being trapped in situations beyond your control and being trapped in situations completely in your control. Desperation in life leads to decisions you regret. You'll always wonder if you could have done different, and it's the same everywhere. The film is incredibly acted, and there's an oppressive atmosphere throughout the whole thing. The ending is telegraphed pretty clearly. It's like a train accident or a drum solo. You know it's coming, but there's nothing you can do to stop it. It becomes obvious when they put the old dog down, and it becomes obvious what that means. It becomes dread as you wait for the final blow to come. It's been 82 years, and that final scene still has massive impact. It's a great classic for a reason. Is there a religious allegory to this? The farm with the rabbits has almost a folk heaven feeling to it, and George's last name being Milton made some gears turn in my brain. Is it the sense of hope in a hopeless time? Yeah, I kind of like that. Yeah. I kind of like that. That gives you a lot to think about. Yeah, I can totally see that, too. I also like that Uh, Frump has made the oncoming onslaught of a drum solo so dramatic and imperative. (laughs) Oh, God, just wait. The drum solo's coming. There's nothing we can do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, What do you got? I have a two star. I went low. Uh, This is J.D. Sarmiento, who has this to say. The original Old Yeller. Just look at the flowers. Humans suck, but so does this movie, kind of. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's not <So> good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks, Letterboxed. I've been podcasting since two thousand six. In that time I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August twenty twenty two, we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM.